According to the CDC's National Survey on Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence, 42.1% of Hispanic women in the United States have been in an intimate relationship in which their partner engaged in sexual or physical violence towards them. Traditional one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions with Latina survivors are insufficient to truly address an issue that affects the entire community. So what effective interventions are available? What does a trauma-informed approach look like in the context of working with the Latinx community? How can mental health providers think flexibly about our role and truly center alongside the community we seek to serve? Welcome to People of Color and Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Zen. As part of our Hispanic Heritage series, our guest today is Dr. Josephine Vasquez Serata, a licensed psychologist and co-founder of Prickly Pear, a Latinx trauma-informed and culturally affirming clinical group practice in Austin, Texas. As part of her clinical work, Dr. Serata provides assessments and evaluations and specializes in working with individuals from diverse backgrounds and identities. Additionally, Dr. Serata has deep knowledge and several publications in the area of domestic violence interventions in the Latinx communities. In combining her decades of experiences, Dr. Serata also conducts trainings on anti-racism and decolonization approaches to mental health and wellness for organizations by enabling leaders to learn how to embrace and practice an anti-racist, trauma-informed approach to create culturally responsive organizational structures, therefore reducing and preventing burnout and promote a strength-based environment for their teams to thrive. As a Latina, bicultural, Mexican-American, and Panamanian bilingual psychologist, Dr. Sudata will be discussing culturally and trauma-informed domestic violence interventions in the Latinx communities. Dr. Sudata, thank you very much for joining us today. Of course, thanks for having me. So I am glad that you're here in Austin, Texas. As you know, sometimes diversity is lacking here in Austin, and it's just great to be able to meet you uh, through this podcast. Can you also share with me how did you get into this work? How did you get into, for instance, domestic violence interventions in the Latinx communities? Yes, yes. So I am a clinical and community psychologist, and I had the honor and the privilege of studying under one of our pioneers in the field of domestic violence. Her name was Dr. Julia Pedilla. She has since passed away a few years ago, and so she's not here with us in physical form anymore, but she was a deep influence for so many of us who do this work. So when I was, you know, a mere undergrad and master's level person and looking at programs, I was informed about clinical and community psychology that I didn't even know was a thing or existed. At that time, I was in a master's program and it was a program at the University of Texas San Antonio that was developed specifically for individuals who wanted to step into PhD level programs in psychology. 
And so it was a basically a research master's program. I mean, through that, I went to APA. I went through American Psychological Association and did a, a one of those speed networking mentorship kind of things that they set up. And one of the psychologists there, you know, I told them what I was interested in. And they said, well, I, it sounds like you want to do clinical and community psychology and here and literally on a napkin wrote down some names of people that they knew at the top of their head and Julia was on that list and I applied and and was one of her first students to work under her in her research lab. So that was an amazing opportunity that shows how connections and mentorship and those things that we do, you know, that are available for us now on this and as psychologists for students are so profound and, and powerful. I mean, I matched with my my mentor and, and started this journey of understanding how to uh, respond to domestic violence in our community from a cultural specific and community-based lens. That was her, she started an organization 30 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, that was, you know, through and through cultural specific domestic violence organization. And so I was in during the day, I was in my, you know, my courses and doing my practicums. And at, every Wednesday night, I was at Camina Latino learning how to do interventions that are uh, truly grassroots and liberation focused. So what does that look like, mm-hmm. actually? I- I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. So it's what it really looks like is, you know, partnership with community members, really listening to them, what it is that they needed. So Julia talks a lot about when she started the program, you know, she was just kind of pulling interventions from the, the shelf, right? Like from our psychology repertoire, right? And academia and, <laughs> and trying these interventions out, right? In the Latinx community there in Atlanta. And they were like, you know, lady, what are you doing? This isn't, this isn't what we need, right? We don't want one of the big messages she heard from, from survivors, women survivors was, you know, we don't want to leave our partner per se. We want the violence to stop but all your interventions and all your models are telling me we have to leave right so what mm-hmm. is another mm-hmm. other way that we can intervene in the domestic violence that doesn't require the mainstream approach of us uprooting and leaving and that in and of itself has a lot of barriers to it right for survivors especially we're talking about monolingual immigrant survivors is who we worked with for primarily in that program and so what Julia did was she responded, you're right. She started a, a battery intervention program for men. Then she started a program for the children because the children were coming to group and they would be in the middle of the group, right? Just, you know, think of community grassroots. You have food and you have a circle going and the kids would be there playing, right? In the middle of the group as their parents are getting support in different groups. And then they started seeing, hey, you know, we think we are our, parent, our children need some support too. So it in, eventually evolved into family programs where instead of, again, the mainstream kind of quick to remove, quick to, to leave, again, that's always an option if needed, of course. It was a more of a family intervention. So then how can we support the violence to stop within the home? And working with the men was a critical key piece that many still, even now to this day, 30 years later, there aren't that many programs in domestic violence who do the approach and, and do it that way. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing to to hear about that grassroots method. And you are really assessing the needs of the community and hearing them out in terms of what's going to work. And the part that's often overlooked is the intervention with the men. And Mm -hmm. I remember doing some domestic violence work during the master's program. And 
like you said, it was a typical, we separate the, the parents mm -hmm. and we work with just mainly the mom and there weren't many mm -hmm. child interventions going on. Mm -hmm. So, wow. Right, right. And so this was, you know, beautiful in that way because you have the entire family engaged. And then of course, you know, things evolved over time. And when, while I was there, we had a strong youth program with different ages and we did youth participatory action research with the youth, right? As a way, again, to help them connect with their voices and to be able to to name what was happening for them in their homes. And so we had one of the projects was for the youth who talked about the impact of mandated reporting, the impact, right, that some of these interventions and systems intervention actually had for them and their families. And so they were able to like do these research projects and then go present back to like the Georgia Commission or people in power and, and to share their experiences for, you know, immigrant or uh, youth or children of immigrants, right? Like what this me really meant for them when these interventions happen happened and it sent them, right, could be different, mean different trajectories for their families that were really difficult for them to navigate. And so through that experience, right, we had these opportunities where really we were learning, right? Even through research, how do we partner with community and learn to give them the tools, right, for them to connect with their voices, for them to be able to be involved in action and, sy and real systems change. And so we did several of those research projects when we were there with youth while I was there. And then my dissertation was actually implementing a leadership program for the survivors. So, you know, as you know, what we see in healing oftentimes, and I think Judith Herman talks about these kind of, she gives it stages of healing for trauma survivors and kind of like the final stage, right? Or, and different, you know, approaches, think of it differently, but is this like sentiment of wanting to give back, of getting to the point where you're on your journey, where you feel like, you know, I have, I'm at a place, I do want to give back to other survivors or to community members. And we were hearing that. So you were mentioning the, uh, the children were actually, you know, being involved in these interventions. Uh, I'm also curious, what might a specific intervention look like, you know, either with the kiddo, with the uh, family, the parents, and a Latinx community? Yeah. So, you know, first, the language, right, is huge. But not only having it, like, linguistically appropriate, but also culturally, right? And so adapting, you know, maybe some of the interventions might be similar, typical interventions that are used, but you're adapting them to, you know, with certain cultural elements in terms of like maybe dichos, right? Or like cuentos or like sayings that we have in our culture that might resonate to uh, the community specifically, right? Speaking specifically to in that perspective. A lot of what Julia, you know, what we taught us was making things accessible right that not to come in with our academic speak or our academic language in reality if we're you know are going to use some of those interventions we need to we need to test them out first and pilot them with our with our community to see if they even resonate and oftentimes they need significant adaptations not only in the language level right but the cultural adaptations and so rather than you should really promote it for us to like to listen, right? What I mentioned before in terms of what is it that they need and then how do we respond and how do we build a collaborative relationship where there isn't the hierarchy, right, of um, we're experts and we know all, but how do we um, work with you to really um, be able to adapt these interventions, learn from you, right, and try something so not only a beam really to write to adapt, right, but I think the, the huge piece that we talk about culturally is like the relationship building. 
right? You have to have time for relationship building and building trust. That's profound. And I know we talk about that a lot in our profession, right? And we talk about, uh, you know, when we're training new therapists and supporting them. And this is even, you know, more significant when we're talking about, right, marginalized communities that are targeted oftentimes by systems, right? When we were there and when I was there in Georgia, uh, quite a few anti-immigrant laws, which now have become national, right, at the national level. But at that time, they were state level, were being passed while we were there, right? And so the it went from us being able to provide these interventions to us being able to also do some support and connection in terms of safety planning around the system, right? So if you get pulled over, what do you do, right? And so being able to have those quick adaptations and again, use the tools that we have afforded to us through our education and our in our toolbox, right? And how do we quickly make sure that we're sharing those with community? right? Adapting those tools that we're and that they own them as well, mm-hmm. that it isn't just something that is kept, is kept with us as the professionals, yeah. right? And so I think those interventions, we were walking alongside them, really, in the program. It was, if an, if an immigrant, anti-immigrant law came through, we were quickly turning around and, and there with them, you know, translating uh, the laws, problem solving on how we could safety plan around them, right? And so it really took us out, out, right, quote unquote, out of only the therapist role or only the interventionist, right? It was like, no, we are here to support them in, in multiple areas of their lives because of the systems that are in place to marginalize them and oppress them and not give them the resources that they need to succeed, right? Yeah, and yeah. so I so think it's that, like as you're that doing was, this work. It's like a, a very fluid identity that right. you're not just a person doing an intervention in the session. You're moving some of your work outside of the session, right? Um, right. And, and being very active. In fact, you right. you you have a very active group practice here in uh, in South Austin. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about the group practice? Sure, sure. So we started uh, five years ago in direct response to. I think, you know, a lot of us go through agency work, right? And when we're in our practicums and we're learning, you know, I mean, there's so many of us are burnt out even when we're, <laughs> by the time we're done getting our degree, right? It's like, woo, I did all that, right? And then now I'm exhausted. Right? And so my colleague, Dr. Hurtado, and I were kind of at that point in our, in, of our careers and thinking of, okay, how can we do it different, right? So many of our communities and us, right, are trauma experience trauma at different levels. And so are our organizations who are fighting these systems and trying to think, change things on the mainstream level, right? And that create can create some systems where work environments aren't the best, right? And there are, you know, trauma dynamics that show up. And so let's, let's try it different. Let's try to create a place that has, you know, that it has these values and is values driven and intentionally having these conversations around anti-racism, intentionally having these conversations around organizational trauma, right? Like the things that show up that are those things that are, it can be in the background in these organizations that contribute to our burnout. And so that's what we did. We, we just started on this journey and it started with just her and I, and then at different iterations, we, we've had different therapists and that have joined us. We're a group practice. We're probably a team of about eight or nine right now in terms of like admin and, and clin- clinicians. And we're all uh, BIPOC individuals really committed to 
doing it different, doing this work different, showing up for each other and in different ways that, you know, have, I guess, leaving kind of the mainstream ways of doing things at the door, right? Of that, like, perfectionism, that, you know, professionalism, right? All the things that get, that get, <laughs> that get, we get acculturated into, really, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Assimilated into these academic institutions. Of, I mean, we've had real conversations with our team members of, like, you know, how do you reconnect with your culture? How do you reconnect with your identity? Mm-hmm. What is, what are the pieces that you want to bring here with you, right? And it can be, I mean, we've had like the simplest combos of being able to wear your big earrings and your lipstick the way you want to, right? But like those subtle things that were were washed away from us going through programs, right? Like I hear a lot of of mental health professionals wanting to to re- have a space where they can reconnect and it's just be safe. It's not seen as something awful or taboo, right? That you can just be you, your genuine self with all your intersectional identities, whatever that looks like you know, we can do this together and serve our community, right? We can be together to support each other and serve our community in authentic ways as well. And so that's what we we're on this journey. We're all on this journey together still. But I feel like, you know, we just celebrated our fifth year and it feels good. We're, you know, we have a great team. We're really excited about what we're doing and having a a good impact, I think, here in the community with the folks we serve and the, the community organizations that we partner with as well. Yeah, well, congratulations on making it to the fifth year. And I did look at your staff profiles, and I thought, wow, a complete you know group of folks that are BIPOC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 we're we're a cultural specific organization, and that's you know who we are, and that's who we serve. And I think the folks that want to to be on our team really resonate with that or culture. You know, as you were describing creating a space where folks can just show up to work and even do little things like wearing earring a type of earring or maybe a, a mm-hmm. certain dress or a hairstyle i can't help but feel a little bit of um uh, i don't know a little bit of i don't think sadness is the word but some sort of emotion that oh gosh mm-hmm. this was missing maybe a little bit of a mm-hmm. missingness like this was missing mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in professional and or most professional mm-hmm. environments, right? I want to be careful right. with my all or nothing statements, but mm-hmm. right. <laughs> most professional statements, there isn't like this true celebration of your culture right. and bringing it out. And I think that's what you're right. creating, right? Right, and that's what we work with other organizations to create as well. You know, it is really pulling from the cultural resilience literature, right? The you know what we've learned from cultural interventions, right? Of the of organizations that are, have done it this way, that you know, and we know through the mental health literature that you know biculturalism is a buffer for stress and severe mental health, right? And so, really, we really embed that in our organization culture. It's just who we are, too. It's just who I am. It's just who I am, too, right? Like, it's just, <laughs> it was really hard when I was going through academic, you know, training to be a blank slate, right? Because that is not who I am. <laughs> I am colorful and I'm bicultural and I switch in and out of Spanish and I, right? And so it was, it was, you know, traumatizing in a way, right? To get told that that was not. Oh, that was not acceptable, right? That was not good. And so, re, you know, for myself, it has been, you know, a, a healing experience as well. And to be able to, able to create the space for others who are healing from that too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, in thinking about, you know, 
the shift from academia to clinical practice, as well as just throughout your entire experience as a woman of color, what were some challenges you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share with others? Yeah, I think this, you know, this is an excellent question and one that we don't talk about often, right? Because you just kind of get through it. And then we're on the other side of it. But really what came up for me with this question was an experience I had actually after my degree. I was at, you know, before I started my private practice, I was doing research at a research institute that was a domestic violence research institute that I was leading. And I was at, it was some kind of think tank or some kind of meeting and we were doing specific work around BIPOC men and boys. And they were having like brought, I mean, it was like hundreds of people in this meeting space. It was huge. I mean, they brought together folks that do interventions, right? What are best practices for, for supporting boys and men of color? And it was a mix of like practitioners and academics in this space. And this one professor, he was a professor, and he stood up and, and it is resonated with me because he gave the comment and he was, and I don't remember what the question was or what he was reacting to, but it was like, you know, what we need to do is we need to help our boys and men of colors in the academic institution, like the conversation went there, right? For those who do enter academia, he said, you know, we need to help them understand that they're not in the hood anymore right? That they, they come into my, you know, my classroom and like, I'm from the hood and this and that. And in a very demeaning, mockingly way, he said it. And he said, you know, we need to help them understand that they're not in the hood anymore, that they're now at an academic institution, right? And for me, that stood out because it was very classist, right? Speaking of individuals who grow up in the barrio or in the hood, there's a particular demographic and class population of individuals who grow up there, right? And I was part of, I was part of that group. And I remember sitting there, I'm thinking, man, if I was his student, right, like that would have totally demoralized me to have my mentor and my professor say something like to like that to me about an identity that was so just like my skin color, right, and, and my hair, growing up in poverty and growing up in the barrio, in the hood, right, made up, has made up so much of me and my grit right? And the resilience and, you know, what got me, you know, and taught me so many skills that I didn't learn in the classroom about navigating, right? These institutions. Yeah. If you know survival. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that has always stuck with me. So when, you know, we're thinking of your podcast and your audience, right? So other psychologists who are mentors, who are professors, or we, you know, different folks in this profession, that isn't talked about very much, right? In terms of, you know, you know, students who come through the academic institution, specific, right? We might already have the experience of racism, right? And this layer of classism. That was huge for me that I had to navigate. You know, going to my PhD program was my first time moving out of my, my home city, right? Because of access, right? I didn't have access to leave my home city for my undergraduate and for my master's, right? Like, I am first generation college student, right? And so I didn't know how to navigate the application process, the system. Thankfully, I've had like different mentors throughout my journey. And of course, like community programs that helped that I went through that helped even introduce me to college. But that experience of isolation when I got to the academy is like, okay, I, you know, I'm already different in this very clear way, right? My last name and the way I present 
And there was this like unspoken or unknown, right, around the classism piece. So it showed up in small ways of people like asking me my SAT and ACT scores or what, you know, what they wanted to know what undergrad I went to, right? They wanted to know like if I had clout in that way, right? And not understanding like, well, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know why that's so important. Like I'm here, yeah. right? But it was this like questioning of why was I, well, why was I here? Why was I in a PhD program? How had I made it to this point, right? And having just like subtle comments made to me, right, that were very classist around uh, as I, when I was a student. And then I've heard it come up in different ways through my professional career, that example, right? I've had it when I'm working with organizations, right? Classist comments come from mm-hmm. leaders of big organizations that are providing services to BIPOC communities, right? And not really having awareness of that, of that piece, of that piece of identity that's critical for us to understand. And the students that we're mentoring, the people that we see, right? And the, and I think the psychological impact, right? Like I speak to it and I know research is showing about like another layer of trauma that individuals experience, right? The trauma piece, but also the resilience and the systems yeah. navigation and all those well, the trauma too. reminders of rejection and harm. Right. 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 Can't trust yeah, others. Exactly. If they're going to reject oh, who yeah. I am. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so we, you know, we are also in these institutions. <laughs> we make it here. <laughs> and for, you know, for some of us, it took a lot, right? It took community level interventions it took lots of mentorship it took right it took all of these things because of the layer of poverty right and lack of resources right the these other barriers and hoops that we we jump to get to this point and then to be like smacked in the face right with whoa what is this do i even belong here right because i i don't i don't you know i don't have i didn't have right the the access to the big ivy leagues or I didn't have, right? And it wasn't that I'm anything fault of me, right? I was like, I'm breaking generational poverty here, mm-hmm. y'all. Yeah. <laughs> like, or be, uh, paying for prep classes and things like that, right? <laughs> right. Just a lot of yeah, activities. Lots of, lots of activities. Zoos, that, museums, all those things right? cost money. All those things, yeah. all those things cost so yeah. much money, right? And so that, you know, that was a huge piece of, you know, my navigating in academia. And I know I've talked to other folks, right, other students who, who, you know, who of course have struggled through that. And some folks, it might be a big enough barrier where they won't continue, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, thinking of, of that professor who was also BIPOC, right, and, and made these comments of, you know, there are intersections here, there are intersectional identities that aren't seen that are important for us to be, you know, be mindful of and aware of. I am very glad you're mentioning this because the idea of racism, classism, we're not immune to that just because we're BIPOC. We internalize it. And uh, there's certain belief systems that we hold and it's important as we are developing and growing to consider these things. And in fact, I think I saw a recent publication about just how much more damaging it is Mm -hmm. to have a BIPOC person Mm -hmm. commit a microaggression. Yes, yes. I was just in a leader at a leadership conference where for BIPOC leaders where I'm providing some support and consultation. Oh, man, that was one of the biggest conversation topics that came up, right? Because, of course, we talk about white supremacy quite often 
but not internalized white supremacy, right? And internalized care classism and what that looks like when, you know, um, BIPOC folks who are aligned with whiteness, right? Um, and of course, we understand it's a sur- survival strategy for them as well, but the psychological impacts it has for folks who, who have to navigate those dynamics, you know, significant. Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Sarata, thank you very much for everything that you've shared with us today. Do you have any final thoughts or messages for our audience? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the the biggest things, you know, around the cultural interventions is any folks are interested who might be students and on their journeys, right, or interested in really the grassroots kind of liberatory ways of doing research, right? There's quite a few researchers out there who do domestic violence research specifically from this lens. You know, I think that's an amazing area, right, for for folks to, to be connected with. And those of us, right, like you who are doing this work intentionally to connect with those mentors. For me, that was huge, connecting with my mentor who got it, who understood who I could you know, I could just go to her office and close the door and cry when I needed to and be like, what is happening here? Um, I don't understand, right? And and having that support was significant and huge, right? So for us to continue to build that pipeline and, and do our own work as psychologists so that we can understand these different intersecting, you know, issues, right? That folks might be uh, managing and dealing with and how can we be the ones to provide that support and offer right a different safe space for others in our field and thank you very much for that message i will encourage folks to check out your group practice website as well as your podcast the prickly couch podcast in fact there you have an episode that specifically addresses culturally responsive treatment i believe that's season two episode one titled our story que es eso de la terapia yeah, 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 thank you. I think mm-hmm. that's the episode yes. that uh, I pulled up here. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you meeting with me and sharing your insights as well as your experience. I know in October, it's also the intersection of mm-hmm. right. Hispanic Heritage Month plus Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Right. Yep. Exactly. And there's some great resources out there on our website, right? So folks can follow us and connect with us. We share lots of resources on our Instagram and social media handle you know, at Prickly Therapy is our handle. So we'll be sharing community resources and through those pages as well. Folks are interested in really digging into that intersection. All right. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the work that you're doing. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We love to hear from you, so send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color in Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Sun.